The Liberating Arts seeks to articulate the enduring relevance of a liberal arts education during a time of pandemic and protest. Through our online platform, we will host a series of conversations with writers, academics, institutional leaders, and public intellectuals about the nature of the liberal arts, their formational purpose, and their moral significance in a time of great cultural disruption. We hope to inspire viewers and listeners to learn more about the liberating effects of these arts on their own lives. To find out more, please visit www.theliberatingarts.org or find us on Twitter, Facebook, Spotify, or YouTube. Welcome to another episode of the Liberating Arts podcast. Today we have Eric Adler, who is a professor of classics at the University of Maryland and the author of The Battle of the Classics. Uh, as well as several other books. So this is the one we're going to talk about this morning. His other books include The Classics, The Culture Wars and Beyond, Valorizing the Barbarians, Enemy Speeches in Roman Historiography, and then this book, which is of particular interest of us today. The subtitle is How a 19th Century Debate Can Save the Humanities Today. And I reviewed this book for University Bookman. I uh, also appeared on Jen Frey's podcast, uh, Sacred of Profane Love, and her Patreon group, the two of us, talked about Adler's book, Several people have been writing on this. Uh, the University of Bookman actually had a forum where it was not just my review, but it was several people in conversation with this text. So this is a valuable book. Thank you, Dr. Adler, for taking the time to sit down and discuss it with us. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And of course, I'm also going to quiz um, Dr. Adler on this book, which he just got done reading, The Permanent Crisis by Paul Ryder and Chad Wellman, and you're prepared. And uh, we've had We've had Dr. Wellman on as well, so we'll get to put these books hopefully in conversation. But why don't you begin and tell us about your book? What drove you to write this book at this time? Yeah, so I suppose that um, there are a number of factors that led me to want to write the book. Some of it was research that I had done for my previous book, Classics, The Culture Wars and Beyond, that made me aware of what the Battle of the Classics were was and sort of what had happened and what you know what this may say about the humanities more generally but i would say if you want to go back to a kind of er idea of why i did the book i was a classical languages major uh in college along with theater i say with some embarrassment and uh under the circumstances when you're a classical languages major you find you have to defend the value of what it is that you're doing a lot to friends to you know non-friends to anybody and so I noted from a long time ago that I came up with various arguments for why it was valuable to study the classical languages and some of them landed and some of them didn't land. And so this is a sort of topic that I've been interested in very much. At the same time, I would say, and I'm sure that you would echo this, mm -hmm. since 2008 and the financial crisis in the United States, I think that humanists have been particularly concerned about the direction in which uh, American higher education has been going and that it might be anti-humanistic, um, anti-liberal arts in some senses, more vocational, and I thought that my book really fit into that. One thing that I didn't really see, however, when I wrote the book is I wrote the book before COVID, and I wrote the book before the Black Lives Matter movement became so big, and then when the book came out, it was sort of uh, associated with both of those things, which I hadn't anticipated. I wrote it beforehand. So that has had um, an, an impact, I think, on the reception of the book. Um, but if anything, I think it's made the message of the book more urgent 
because I think the COVID crisis has accelerated some of the concerns that people had starting in 2008 and really going much further back as both my book and, and the Writer and Wellman book both discuss. Absolutely. I mean, one of the reasons we started the Liberating Arts, we actually got together as a group before the quarantine and before the Black Lives Matter protests. And we were just discussing liberal arts under threat. And those of us who are now kind of the leadership team of the Liberating Arts, what began was I was in a secure job that I then had to leave because of quarantine. And so then I passed it to the next person who was then fired from his position, who had to pass the leadership on to another person who was then furloughed. So, I mean, we, we went through within a month changing leadership just within the liberating arts. So this uh, perceived threat against the liberal arts went from theoretical to very personal <laughs> very quickly. And so for us, we were, driven, like you said, more urgently to respond to the issue about whether or not the liberal arts are, were really under threat. And a lot of it has to do with this misconception, the fact that you had to defend studying classical languages, the fact that we are having to change people's understanding of liberal arts from elitist and distant from our relevant concerns or our contemporary world is, is something that we've you know, really tried to impress upon people. And I think that I think that your book does a great job about seeing the connection between the contemporary problems and, and the history of the problem. Would you mind walking people through how you tell the story of the history of the problem, especially because, of course, Wellman and Ryder tell a different narrative, I think, about the history of the problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, thank you. That's a great question. So one thing that I was interested in doing in my book was trying to trace what the history of the humanities is, um, because it was my contention as at the start of the book that many of the defenders of the humanities today, recent defenders in the past decade or so, or two decades or so, um, don't seem to know that history. Mm -hmm. And so they, their hearts are in the right places. I, I love that they're trying to defend the humanities. I don't wanna mm -hmm. criticize them too much because even though my answers may be different, they, they want what I want, I think. Mm -hmm. But I did feel like the, types of defenses that are dominant among those writing about the humanities today um, are unmoored from a history of the humanities. And as a result, it makes it harder to defend them properly because we don't know what the humanities are, what they've been, what they're supposed to do and so forth. So in the second chapter of my book, I go through a history of the humanities as quickly as I can. It's not a short chapter, but as quickly as I can. Um, from Roman antiquity, where you see the start of this tradition, which is a response very much to Greek notions of paideia, um, moving all the way forward to the medieval period into the Renaissance and so forth. And then we get to the sort of modern humanities, a switch between uh, the humanities to the modern humanities, and then the kind of uh, long scale um, attempt by defenders of the modern humanities upon the death, well, not really the death, but the demise of the classical humanities to try to defend the modern humanities. And it is my contention in the book, or it's one of my contentions in the book, that that defense will be strongest if it is moored in the history of the humanities itself. So I attempt to show in the second chapter of my book that the humanities, the humanistic tradition is much more complex and variegated than people recognize who attempt to defend the modern humanities. And that our conception of the humanities today is very much a late 19th century forward conception of the humanities that includes French and philosophy and classics and German and so forth. And that actually this was not 
what Renaissance humanists were attempting to defend. Um, and actually, in some ways, is more similar to something that Cicero was attempting to defend in his uh, original articulation of what he called the studia humanitatis, or the studies of humanity. So I try in that chapter to explain what humanitas was to Cicero and to the Romans more generally, why he thought that this educational ideal um, and kind of moral ideal could be passed down through the reading of certain texts and the study of certain subjects, how the Studia Humanitatis for Cicero and the Romans gets narrowed during the course of the Renaissance to meaning really strictly a kind of classical literary education in reading Greek and Roman writers, and how in the late 19th century in the United States and a bit earlier in Germany, that attempt at describing the humanities and seeing the value in humanities was falling apart. Mm -hmm. And as a result, it crumbled. And in the late 19th century, the modern humanities came to take the place of the ancient or, well, we might say classical humanities. And that's the humanities that we have today. So I suppose a through line to that chapter, even though there are differences between the ancient and medieval and Renaissance and modern conception of the humanities, a through line to that chapter is the notion that it should be about humanitas that it should be about instilling some notion of humanity or benevolence or kindness or averseness to violence through a particular type of education. So it's a kind of inward focused education associated with character development and moral betterment, even though it's been different at different stages. And so that I think is key to understanding the predicament of the modern humanities today and to defend the modern humanities from a system, as I attempt to argue, I'm sure we'll talk about this in a bit, but from a system of the modern professionalized university, which is profoundly anti-humanistic in its creation and in its um, setup, essentially. Absolutely. Yes, I don't want to jump too much to the modern humanities and their specialization, because of course that's, uh, that's definitely where we need to go. But I also, I want to focus on not just the humanist argument you make, but what I have been, and I, I hope I'm quoting you enough, but I, I will tell you your ideas have definitely formed my conception of this. And so in my defense of liberal arts, I keep talking about the humanist leading to the humanitarian impulse. And the connection between the two that I found so compelling in your argument has much to do with what we are calling the liberating arts, that in order to be able to go out and do social justice, to make changes in the world, to be humanitarians, you first have to be a humanist. Do you mind, do you mind drawing out uh, why you feel like that is such a, a necessary understanding, that relationship? So I do think that one thing we have to contend with when we're trying to talk about humanism and its lack in the modern American university is the fact that the way that this modern university has been set up is distinctly anti-humanistic insofar as it minimizes the importance of character development, the internal moral development of students. And it does so in a number of ways as I try to catalog in my book, but one is the curriculum in which it maximizes student choice. Students can choose whatever they want. And the idea, which if you think about it, is really perverse, that the uneducated would know what a curriculum should be better than educated people. I mean, what does that actually say about us? So there's minimal guidance offered um, by um, the earlier generation about one, what one might want to read in order to become a better person. Instead, everyone can choose whatever they want. Um, this very much goes against the notion of an education as moral formation. 
Um, and so that I think is a serious problem, the serious problem that the humanities confront. The system itself is anti-humanistic. And it was deliberately, as I attempt to show in my book, deliberately created by those who wanted to center the college curriculum on the scientific method and deliberately attempted to limit the influence of the humanities and theology, um, then seen as the classical humanities, on American college students. And they succeeded. They succeeded rather marvelously. But the problem is, and I think that this goes back to your question quite well, the problem is that the modern university seems to think that students will be vocationally trained or whatever narrow training they get, and they will naturally use that narrow training in the service of the good. Now, why they think that if they've never given anyone any sense of serious character development is bizarre to me. Why we would sort of naturally think that people aim to serve others when it seems to me a more realistic, unfortunately, impression of human nature is that people have that notion that they may want to help others, but they're also selfish too. And so we need an education that actually focuses on making individuals better so that they can be sure that when they go out and try to help others, that they're genuinely attempting to help others rather than helping themselves and fooling themselves into thinking they're helping others. One example I use toward the end of my book is our uh, current generation of you know, Silicon Valley tech giants. And if you ask them, you know, why did you start this app? Why did you set it up and so forth? They'll say, oh, to make the world a better place. There was a New Yorker piece about this. That this is the sort of standard line to make the world a better place. That's why I set up Facebook or something like that. And then if you look at the social science research about these apps, they, they create misery. Everyone's unhappy on them. Uh, young women and men have terrible body image because of all, what the Instagram is doing and so forth. And yet the creators have become really, really wealthy. And yet they're fooling themselves into thinking that they've done this out of some altruism. So this can suggest then that what we think is humanitarian is not pseudo-humanitarian if we haven't really thought about values, if we haven't really thought about what it means to be a good person. And un unfortunately, because of the demise of the humanities and the system that we find ourselves in, that has been swept to the side of the modern uh, uh, American university. Yeah, it's fantastic. I mean, you know, ha having taught for almost 20 years now, I would start classes by giving students index cards at the beginning of our integrated humanities and saying, you know, what's wrong with the world? And all of them would answer, you know, they all have their uneducated ideas about what is wrong with the world. And really, they've just been programmed by media and advertising and cultural influence to come up with those conceptions of what is wrong with the world. And, and without fail, every semester, someone would be like, the problem is we're sitting here talking about philosophy and we're not out there changing the world. Yeah, right. And I thought, well, how, how could you possibly go change it based on all of these things that have influenced you? You're not free. Right. You are completely controlled by all of, and, and that's our conception of a human person. I think that becomes one of the reasons that we can say education is about free choice is because our conception of the human person is that they just need to be programmed, right? And that we can make them the best possible citizens by programming them to be the most productive citizens. And we reward curiositas, you know, that you, if you have infinite curiosity, that is somehow the virtue that you need to be in the world. And within the evolutionary process, progress is always better. The next generation then by, by default has to be better than our current generation, even if they're uneducated. Mm -hmm. because that's the trend, right? In human cultures that they're becoming better and better. So I feel like there's all these fallacies that are feeding this notion 
that we can create education this way, right? If we're rewarding curiositas, if we are all about free choice rather than actual liberal freedom, if we believe human beings need to be programmed to be citizens, you know, with that are producers and consumers, and then that's what we're creating, um, then of course that's what we have. Mm -hmm. And then we wonder why it is that it doesn't work and things fall apart. And <laughs> because there is no conception um, that the human person is actually a liberally free human. Mm -hmm. within a community of other humans uh, mm -hmm. that can sin and be, well, you don't use the language of sin, of course, um, but this is, we're, we're all through the CCCU, so we, we are allowed to talk about sin. And we, <laughs> you're talking about the conceptions, you know, of selfishness, these, these drives in our character um, that lead us away from the common good, that lead us away from human goods, right? Yeah. And yeah. I do that incredibly well. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with that. And I would also stress that the way the modern American university advertises itself, it sort of foregrounds these things. First of all, I think that one thing we should think about if we're going to maximize free choice for students, we're basically saying that previous generations have nothing to teach us. Mm -hmm. That you can just pick whatever you want. If you want to take a humanities class, and you want to satisfy that by taking Plato, that's great. But if you want to take it by taking um, comic books, that's great too. Not, neither has anything to tell us more. So it's a sort of fundamentally unserious reflection on what it is that humanistic texts can actually do to somebody. Um, this is something that people I think recognize when it comes to primary and secondary schools, the fights that people are having over the curriculum, what should be read in schools and so forth. These are unpleasant fights in many ways, but they're unpleasant in part because they're really important because there's a recognition that what you read has an effect on your imagination your sense of what it means to be human. And so it really does matter. But suddenly when people get to college, ah, pick whatever you want. I can't be bothered. I'd rather do research. So you just pick whatever you want. I mean, it's uh, fundamentally unserious. I would also note that if you watch um, sports on television, college sports on television, you will see these little advertisements for colleges and universities whose uh, teams are playing in the, in the field. And the advertisements always stress um, they're always anti-humanistic. They're always talking about a professor of robotics who has maintained a, uh, a new or invented a leg for a three-legged canine. Um, it's always about helping the world. They never, the advertisement never has someone who says, I read Aristotle and I think I understand what justice means now. That's never part of the advertisement. It's always sort of what we're doing to save the world rather than what students are doing to become better people. I actually think that's dangerous. Um, and I think we see in American history also that when you have leaders especially, but people in general who have never thought seriously about what it means to be a good person, who have never thought about the fact that they may be selfish or may have a will to power or drive over others, that this is actually going to lead to very serious problems in the United States. Um, and so I do think that we need a university. This is one reason I wrote the book. We need a university that actually puts humanism and humanitarianism on equal planes. I'm not suggesting we don't need humanitarianism, that we shouldn't be concerned about making the world a better place, but I'm saying that if you don't have humanism, we're not going to have real humanitarianism, we're going to have pseudo-humanitarianism. Absolutely, yeah, you said something about a benevolent dictator or something. You have someone who can have the pretense of being a humanitarian, but really for their own good, which I just think is fantastic. You know, one of the things that bothers me about the modern university as well, just going off of this and hopefully leading into Wellman, is you have millions of majors. And so the university that has the most choices and the most majors and the most degree programs, no one ever wants to go eat at a retail chain where 
they specialize in chicken and fish and burgers and right. Right, you you would never actually go somewhere <laughs> that had the most options <laughs> because we know that that is that's going to kill the product right, right. if, if right. you're if you're the place that's like the gas station that sells clothing and sells toys and sells medicine, we know that's not a good thing. Right. And yet when it comes to the university, we've decided the more majors means it's a better university. And that that level of, uh, of free choice is actually killing the programs, right? Because they're they're not strong. They, they in a sense, are trying to do all things to all people, right? They, they're full of bloat in a, in a sense. And so you're, you're, you end up paying for getting less quality, right? Yeah, I, I would also say that I think a, a really acute problem that isn't often discussed um, or at least sufficiently, is prestige. How much prestige warps people's perceptions of what a good college is or a good education. And you think about it, you know, if your child got into a school that has a wonderful curriculum that you thought had wonderful professors and really gave a serious, solid education um, to your child, and then that child also got into Harvard, Yes. How many people would send their kid to the first place rather than to Harvard? Mm -hmm. There's a kind of cachet associated with some of these elite institutions, even though everybody knows they're not better yeah. as far as their education is concerned, what they offer. Now, you might have more interesting students who are with you and, you know, and so forth. There might be better conversations in the in the halls, you know, as a result of the, the you know, people may be more intellectually engaged as students. But professors at those kinds of places typically aren't that interested in undergraduates. Mm -hmm. They're more concerned with their research. The, mm -hmm. Harvard has the same curriculum that virtually every other place has to. So the notion that that somehow is a better education is kind of risible, and yet people buy into it. You know, the, the sort of cachet of having that kind of degree. And I really do think that that's a serious problem with improving American higher education, is that people tend to follow the leader, and the leader is seen as a leader because of prestige and endowment um, and their acceptance rate, rather than anything intrinsic that they're actually offering as far as education is concerned. Right, absolutely. I, I think the misconceptions are the major problem. I mean, what we're able to do is not cynically deride the way the universities currently are, but more, here's a here's a different story. Here, let's, let's expose these, these fallacies, these lies for what they are and say, where, where do you want education to be? What do you want it to actually look like? don't don't fall for the idea that classical languages aren't worthwhile right because you think that it only has to do with training and money making don't fall for the lie that harvard has a better program than you know i went i went to baylor mm -hmm. my sister went to baylor law and when she was getting hired people were choosing her over harvard any day because they actually know their stuff they had to practice their stuff right so we kind of have to tell a different narrative that exposes these lies for for the truth right um Wellman and, and Ryder, just kind of looking back at their argument, their issue is, is coming from a story in which the modern university is being born in the 1700s in Germany. So they're not considering, and I'm, I'm not sure why, but they're not considering the story of the humanitas going back to the classical ages. They're only considering this modern picture. Do you mind kind of outlining what you saw in their argument and then maybe where you saw some, some uh, you know, holes or gaps? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, first of all, I would say, and I think that you would agree with me, that despite the fact that I have disagreements with them about the humanities and its predicament and so forth, um, that it's a real, Permanent Crisis is a really valuable book. Okay. And I gained immensely from it, despite the fact that I think that on sort of final conclusions, we disagree 
um, rather profoundly, actually. Um, uh, uh, but nevertheless, they paint a picture rather vividly about the changes that occurred, especially in sort of intellectual history in the German university as it was being created, beginning in the late 17th century and then moving forward. Um, but yes, they are interested in that story, I guess. They're interested in that professionalization and what it did to the humanities. Um, and so they aren't that interested in looking further back. They make nods to the Studia Humanitatis. Um, they make nods to Cicero and earlier notions of education, but they suggest that there is a kind of fundamental break between earlier conceptions of the humanities. And here they really focus, I think, explicitly on Renaissance humanism and not further back. Um, because I, one thing I could argue is that there's actually just as much of a profound break between the ancient conception of the humanities and the Renaissance conception of the humanities that's sort of equal to any change with the modern humanities. So th th we have some potential problems there. But there, they're sort of interested in suggesting that there's a break between um, the ancient and Renaissance humanities and the modern humanities, such that it isn't really useful to talk about continuity between those traditions to sort of put them all together. They're all a humanistic tradition. Instead, they really wanna cut off um, the humanities from their ancient and Renaissance manifestations and then just talk about the modern humanities in the modern university. Um, I see what they're saying because it's certainly true that there isn't just one perfect line of continuity from antiquity through the, to the medieval period to the Renaissance, to the modern university and so forth. They're, they're right, there are changes and there are fundamental, very serious changes. Obviously the change from the humanities being seen as essentially the study in the Renaissance of the classical languages and classical authors to the modern humanities we think of today as philosophy and Korean and so These are obviously major changes. At the same period of time, I think that that through line is actually really important um, for a number of reasons. First, it seems to me that at least in the United States, but I think also in Germany earlier, the modern humanities took up the fight that the Studia Humanitatis had lost um, in the aftermath of the Renaissance. So the reason why there might be a sense of permanent crisis associated with the modern humanities is the fact that they were on the defensive from the very beginning because they were taking up the fight that the classical humanities had lost, as it turns out in the United States, during the Battle of the Classics of the late 19th and into the early 20th century. So there was a countercultural quality to the modern humanities from the very start, which I think Ryder and Wellman talk about pretty well, but that was built into the modern American research university, which was in some senses, uh, deeply influenced by the modern German research university. And so there, the, there isn't really a lack of continuity as far as that's concerned, but it's sort of taking up this defensive position from the very beginning because it was a response to the loss that the classical humanities had sustained earlier. And so that I think explains the crisis, this sense of permanent crisis from the very beginning because when they start uh, the modern humanities were on the outs because of the new curriculum and the new priorities of the modern research university, which had destroyed the ancient kind of classical humanities or studia humanitatis in the Renaissance sense um, and made the modern humanities come up in their place. So th that it seems to me explains this sense of permanent crisis more than a disconnect from earlier notions of humanism.
Yeah, I, I think their book is essential for anybody who's interested in these conversations, right? And and one of the reasons why is because they're talking about the tension that is always going to exist in the humanities, not just because they're defending themselves, but as you even mentioned in your book, you're defending yourself in a different game, in a different system. So once you make the humanities instead an end in themselves to, um, not even an end in themselves, but you study literature so that you become a humanist, so that you become a humanitarian, right? You have these kinds of ends that are noble and ennobling. And instead you're making it a specialization in a research agenda field where you have to justify your existence within the sciences, within the social sciences, within the, the world of money-making in the marketplace, and they're saying that tension is always going to put the humanities on the defensive because they aren't a they aren't a science they are they are not a social science they're not right. something that fits within within that paradigm right right no I, I completely agree with that i mean i do think that they also do a very good job of demonstrating how countercultural the humanities have been not only in the university when it became professionalized but also in culture that with industrialization mm -hmm. um, with you know various other forces democratization that the humanities in some senses couldn't keep up with this but to me it seems primarily the issue um, with the defensive posture of the humanities, whether it was in during the Battle of the Classics when the classical humanities were under attack, or whether it's today when the modern humanities are under attack, the chief reason is that the curriculum has been set up and the goals of the university have been set up in such a manner as to put the humanities on the sideline mm -hmm. and to establish the uh, natural and social sciences as the core of what higher education is supposed to do. Under those circumstances, humanists are always going to feel like they're pushed off to the side. That's what the creators of the modern university in the United States attempted to do, and they succeeded. So I don't know whether crisis is the best word to explain this, because you know how long, how prolonged can a crisis be? I mean, you're gonna have this go on since the 17th century in yeah. Germany, or at least since the 18th century, or, the, or at least the 19th century in the United States, um, that doesn't seem to make much sense. But the idea that people are sort of fighting upstream mm -hmm. um, as humanists is built into the way that the modern university works. Mm -hmm. And so that's always gonna be the case unless you try to move toward models that are more amenable to humanism. Yeah. And that's why I guess I disagree with Ryder and Wellman when they suggest that the kind of character building quality of doing narrow research is sufficient to have some sort of humanistic element in education. I don't think that's ever going to be sufficient for reviving the modern humanities. And I also worry a little bit that there's a, a sense of, um, a sense that there things aren't really that bad. So this is, I guess, sort of what I, I worry about is if you say that there's a permanent crisis, that this has always been the case. Um, and to some extent, I suppose, depending on whether you agree with the word crisis, they're sort of right, right? And so far as that the humanities have always been pushing upstream against the modern uh, research university, but that doesn't mean that there aren't ebbs and flows and that some periods aren't better. And so I suppose by suggesting, oh, there's always a crisis, everyone always thinks there's a crisis, that sort of dismisses 
real concerns about the future of our education. And especially if you're at a fancy research university in which you're not likely to lose your job, it's a little bit easier to say that when other people are out of work and other programs are shut down. You say, oh, well, everyone's always been concerned about this. I, I get a little nervous about that argument um, because I do think there are differences that one can tell that, you know, in my in the course of my short career, you know, 2008, there was a difference then. You know, things got more difficult than COVID. Things have gotten more difficult. There were other periods in which they didn't seem as bad. I think it is true that humanists have always felt embattled because they're fighting against the priorities of the modern American research university. But that doesn't mean that there aren't ebbs and flows. Absolutely. Well, and I also think the problem with the modern research university and trying to make humanities into something that it's not gets at the heart of the problem because when you know Schleiermacher, they're, they're using this idea that when Schleiermacher and so forth were creating the university, the humanities were seen as the core, as the central part of the education that formed the citizens in Germany to be what they needed to be, to be the kind of human beings they needed to be. And instead, mm -hmm. the, the story that they're telling is when that morphed into we need to be scientific in our approach. We need to be able to innovate constantly. You're losing the sense that we're we're trying to actually cultivate from the past. We're trying to um, see the goods from previous generations and make sure that well-informed citizens, well-formed citizens are what we're creating. And you, you focus on, okay, I need to find something really innovative to say. I need to find a small thing to research that nobody really cares about, but it's it's been undone, you know, it's never been done before, just like discovering the atom. Like I have to do that somehow in the in the study of literature. That's a completely different enterprise. And this is to me, this is one of the major problems. Like I'm coming from literary study, in which this was the paradigm. You have to find a dissertation that matters to absolutely no one and zeroes in as much as possible on the smallest little thing instead of doing what you always should have done, which is let's keep teaching Homer, let's keep teaching Shakespeare, let's make sure that people are encountering Frederick Douglass for the first time and right. that they know what these ideas mean and that they matter and that they change the kind of people they are. And I think what Wellman and them are pointing out is they're saying that that kind of narrow focus study is going to do something for the person, for the individual that's going to change them. To me, that's not enough. That There's not enough change that happens by me zeroing in on, on one word within Flannery O'Connor's au revoir that like right, <laughs> changes right. the world. <laughs> right, right. No, I agree with that. I mean, first of all, I would, I would note a couple things. I, I did want to get back to that because I think that's a really good point. But in 1876, when the Johns Hopkins University was established in the United States as the first American research university, the first person they hired was a classicist. And the idea was you had to have a classicist. Now the University of Austin, I guess, has been established um, to much fanfare. This is supposedly traditionalist. And what's their first degree going to be? Entrepreneurship. Right. So you get this completely different sense of what the university should do. And that, I think, in a nutshell, tells you sort of how much things have changed and, you know, uh, whether there's a permanent crisis or not. Um, the second thing, I guess, which is is really um, directly related um, to, to what you've said, is that Wellman and, and Ryder suggest that the kind of hard work associated with doing narrow research is a kind of moral education in itself. And I guess, I mean, anything is a sort of moral, any sort of activity you undertake has a moral component to it. So that's not necessarily wrong. But I do think that it's kind of perverse that one is trying to put that up as our moral exemplar, especially when 
most undergraduates can't really do serious research papers. I mean, in, that is to say that they haven't been trained in the kind of narrow specialization associated with graduate study. In my field, they can't read languages well enough to do so. You know, they can't read modern languages enough to do so. They don't know enough about the field. So when you ask them to do a research paper, it's always kind of a simulacrum at best of what a good research paper ought to be. It's really the professor who can do this kind of research. But what kind of a university sets up the professor as the ideal and says all the undergraduates can't really do what the professor does and yet they're supposed to pretend that they can and that's supposed to be their moral formation it seems perverse given that the university should exist for the students not for the professors yeah. um, and so that it seems to me is a real problem moving forward Oh, absolutely. And then every humanities class that you ever take when you're an undergraduate is aimed towards this research paper at the end of it, rather than towards a practical sense of wisdom or addressing contemporary problems or trying to understand, you know, how Aristotle relates to the current headlines. You know, we, we don't, we have a complete misconception even in how we're assessing those students, what we're expecting them, you know, to do. Um, I, I've been in English departments, you know, you said to your embarrassment in theater, I think theater is awesome. To my embarrassment, I've actually taught in English departments. And English departments to me are a complete failure of what literature and writing studies should be because you're trying to teach people to love how to read, right? And to love writing. And instead, these programs have become we're turning out more English professors, which is yeah. nobody needs more English professors, right? And so, yeah. you know, I think that to me is a profound failure. And we can't get out of the system, out of the current ways that these things are being done to go back in a sense and reclaim this other way of doing humanities, right? That is not a modern humanities. And that's that's where I feel like this diagnosis is really helpful, is that mm -hmm. this doesn't work. The way that we've been doing the humanities from the modern conception for the last few hundred years does not work. It does not do what the humanities were always doing for a thousand years or more. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think that's right. Um, I would also add that one of the real problems is not just an argument problem, that not only do you have to win the argument about what the humanities should do and what humanistic discipline should do and why you should be a humanities professor, and why you should be a humanities student, you have to win that. But it's not only that, all of the perquisites associated with the modern research university work in the other direction. They require people to write narrow, articles on specialized topics in order to get a job, in order to keep a job, in order to have a chance to move elsewhere and so forth. So to some degree, all of the sort of solutions that I'm trying to offer in my book are all fighting upstream against a very deviously brilliant system, which is trying to force humanities professors to become kind of scientists or yeah. pseudoscientists. Yeah, absolutely. And we can all talk in the lunchroom about how awful that is, how no one really reads our work, and that, you know, who cares about what happened in line 167 of Euripides' Alcestis? This is not a guide to living. None of this really matters. But it doesn't matter. Because if you want to keep your job, you have to do that stuff. Yeah. And so really that gives you a sense that a different sort of university needs to, or a different sort of system really needs to exist. It's not necessarily something that you don't see elsewhere in the United States higher education, but it's really marginalized mm -hmm. in comparison with the mainstream uh, 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 higher education. And I think that causes problems too, especially because it's the elite schools that sort of excel at the modern 
uh, research university that are really calling the shots for the other schools. And so you don't get, even though there are so many different sorts of institutions, most of them, vast majority of them are sort of following Harvard. Everyone must try to be Harvard exactly, you know, and, and that's a real problem. Yeah, that's fantastic. Well, it sounds, I mean, it does sound like we just need to completely change the system, which is hopeful. I mean, this is what the liberating arts is trying to do. We're trying to say, you know, this year we've spent a whole year having these conversations. Our goal then is to turn this into a book of like how to, how to fix the problem, right? Uh, and turn these conversations into action. If you could wrap up for us, what we'll close out here, what would be your how to? Like if you had any way of addressing this problem that you thought was going to be a corrective, Mm -hmm. misconception about the modern humanities, what would be your how-to? Well, I think one of the reasons why in the final chapter of my book, I focus so much on the curriculum is I really do think that everything else comes from it. The curriculum really gives you a sense of what sort of institution this is and what vision of an educated person that these institutions offer. So the first thing I would ditch, at least as far as humanities training is concerned, is the choose your own adventure curriculum in which students can choose comic books, or they can choose the Bhagavad Gita, it doesn't make any difference, all of them offer humanistic skills, and so it doesn't matter. I think we would have to uh, have a kind of core curriculum, which I've tried to argue is omnicultural, so that we make sure that people feel included in this core, and that we recognize um, some things that fight against the kind of a focus in a modern American culture on separating people, that there are also similarities between people and traditions as well as important. And I would require those courses of all students. I don't care very much about what people major in provided they're actually given this sort of education um, that can lead them to think very seriously about what it means to be a good person. So I think if we did that, um, that would fix, it wouldn't fix everything because we'd still have to fix the system in some, in some uh, more major ways. We'd have to change how we deal with advancement, you know, that narrow articles is not the sort of chief way of moving up. So how we're going to fix that is not necessarily clear, but at least if we have a good curriculum where we really feel like it's a philosophical blueprint for the sort of adult we're interested in creating, rather than, ah, you go choose it. I, I can't be bothered to choose what you're supposed to take. I think a lot of good would flow from that. I think that's wonderful. And that's one of my favorite things about your book was the list of different courses and the ways that curriculum would look at the end. I think that's a great start for a how-to. So I appreciate it. Thank you, Dr. Adler, for spending this, this morning with me. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it.